0: This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your (laughs) Seriously? Well, we're
2: back.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 303rd episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we are back with a preview of the upcoming Jurassic Park Book Club featuring The Lost World by Michael Crichton. I am so excited for this one. Uh, I have started reading the novel again. It's been so many years since I read it last. And it's been so, like, enlightening to kind of dive back into this one. So I'm very, very excited for the book club this time around. And today, Ben, who usually hosts the book club, he's the one who drives this ship uh, for this segment. He is going to be speaking with Sabrina and Garrett from I Know Dino, uh, two very old friends of the show. I, I'm i not saying they're old. I'm just saying they've been – we've all been friends for so long now. And I, I love those two, and I'm so glad to have them back on the show uh it's been a while i think since the last book club maybe i think so uh but yeah it's been a while and uh we don't uh, we don't do this often enough but i'm so glad to have them back and today they're going to be taking a look with ben at the map and and the, the you know the 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 style and, and the dinosaurs and everything that you feature on isla sorna so i'm very very excited for them to dive into that today like I said, this is a preview of the uh, the book club for this coming year. We're going to be kicking off the book club on January 10th. That's going to be episode one. So that'll feature the first third of the book. And then uh, on February 14th, we're going to feature the second third of the book uh, for episode two. And then episode three will be uh, March 14th. So, Again, uh, you know Ben will state it as well, but you're, you can go ahead and contact us at JurassicParkBookClub at gmail.com. And Ben will add all of your thoughts and concerns to those episodes. Whenever you're talking about the, the first third, he'll add it to that episode. If you're talking about the second third, he'll add it to that episode. And same with the, th- the final third of the book. So please send in your thoughts and break it down uh, between each portion of the book. And we will be sure to add those to the upcoming episodes. Again, that is Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com. The Jurassic Park Book Club. When we read through Jurassic Park, that was so much fun. We covered so much content, hours and hours worth of uh, discussion and, and just thoughts and theories, and looking forward to the franchise and what they could use from that book. So I'm really, really excited to see what we can what we can parse out from the Lost World as well. There's a lot in there, and a lot I would love to see used in the future again. So. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the book club previously, please go check out the links in our show notes. I'll leave the, uh, the links for uh, the previous Jurassic Park book club episodes where you can listen to all of those and follow along while you're reading that book. And get ready because we're going to be starting in the new year with The Lost World. So we're going to prepare in today's preview episode. But first, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So we are in the final few days of of our Jurassic Gives Back Charity Drive, which we are giving back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So if you want to help out and raise some money for some kids, families, some research and everything going on at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, it's a, it's an organization that means a lot to, to my family and the help that they were able to give us and to so many more. Uh, you can go over to our YouTube channel where you can find on our videos, a lot of our recent videos will have uh, the Charity Drive right on there. You can donate right Right there, Uh, 100% of the money will go straight to the Children's Hospital. None of it goes to YouTube. None of it goes to us. YouTube kind of handles the processes and sends it all directly to those charities, um, which is, you know, very, very appreciated that nothing, you know, comes out from that that, uh, donation. So please, please help us give back this holiday season. I know we are really coming close here to Christmas, and uh, we would we would greatly appreciate if you took a chance to uh, donate some money this holiday season. And speaking of YouTube, we do have a video coming up on Monday featuring the Jurassic World Captives Clash Edition. Uh, Toy Monster was kind enough to send us a really cool uh, promo box that featured a ton of the slime eggs with the dinosaurs inside, and then there was a big massive like mega egg and some other goodies in there and me and my son open that up that video is coming up here on monday so please keep an eye out for that um and then wednesday 9 p.m eastern standard time uh we didn't do it recently i feel like we maybe missed one or two uh this month i forget but we do have another live stream coming to you wednesday night 9 p.m eastern standard time Uh, There's been a lot of stuff. I was away for a little bit, uh, but we'll be able to talk about some fun new Jurassic stuff that popped up recently. I'm very excited about that. And of course, we will be raising money on our live stream. So if you're if you're watching along with the live stream, you can go ahead and donate right along with us. So please keep an eye out for that live stream on Wednesday night. But enough of all that. Why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off? by transforming the Jurassic Park Book Club into the Lost World Book Club with a preview episode and a fun look at Isla Sorna and the Dinosaurs with Ben, Sabrina, and Garrett. I wish Dr. Grant were here. He'd write the most amazing article about this. You do need that guy. I got your nerd book! And I appreciate that. It was kind of preachy. I
3: had Sheffield campfire stories with my uncle. Oh, no. Did you read Malcolm's
0: book? Just the parts they didn't like.
2: I read your book. And then my teacher told me about this other book by Daniel Backer,
0: and he... I read both of your books. I like the first
2: one more. Well, it's two things that we have in common.
3: Hello everyone and welcome to the Jurassic Park Book Club on the Jurassic Park podcast. In our second season we will be covering The Lost World by Michael Crichton. This time we will be dividing the book into four episodes, starting today with the preview episode, The Map, talking about the map and the dinosaur drawings on the first page of the novel. This season I'm super excited to be joined by some of the fantastic Jurassic Park community members, such as... Garrett and Sabrina from I Know Dino, Stephen and James from Jurassic Unicast, Stephen Ray Morris from See Jurassic Right, Brad Joes from the Jurassic Park Podcast, David from Jurassic Collectibles, Tom Jurassic from Jurassic Collectibles and the Jurassic Park Podcast, Jurassic Dave 93, host of Star Wars television on Victoria Cantina, and Joe Breeze, aka Vector That Fox, illustrator of Jurassic Park and the Lost World novels by Furlio Society. And you. As with last time, we'd love you to send in your short audio messages to Jurassic Park book Club at gmail.com and we will play them on each of the episodes, one in January, one in February and one in March, on the dates Brad announced earlier. Send in your thoughts on the novel, the pacing, the story, the characters and the dinosaurs or anything you want to say about this fantastic book. And we will get them on each of the episodes at the end of our discussions. I can't wait to dive into this book with you all. If you're wondering why I chose Culture Club Karma Chameleon as my background music, join us on episode 3. Jurassic Park Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of speaking again with Garrett and Sabrina from I Know Dino. After previously joining me on the first book club, I was super keen to ask them back on board for The Lost World. In addition to being huge fans of of the Jurassic Park franchise, they both share an interest for all things dinosaurs, including having their own dinosaur wedding. Together they run I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast, covering all the latest news, updates and fossil discoveries and scientific information. So without further ado, let's saddle up and get this movable feast underway. <laughs> Hi, guys. How are you both?
1: <laughs> Great. Good. Thank you for having us back. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you for joining me today. I'm chuffed to be back talking Jurassic Park with you guys and wanted to uh, ask, did you read the novel or watch the movie first?
1: Oh, I definitely watched the movie mm-hmm. way before the novel.
2: Yes. But most recently, I've read the novel, so I remember the novel better than the movie at this point.
1: Yeah. I just finished <laughs> rereading the novel like seven hours ago so it's very fresh in the mind
3: (laughs) (laughs) okay that's fair enough so how long ago did you watch the movie
1: i think it It was was last year oh most recently yeah yeah yeah, we rewatched the whole set i think last year yeah and then we originally watched it though i think probably when it came out or thereabouts Mm.
3: okay so did you go to the cinema to watch it
1: i think Mm. i probably did because i was really into dinosaurs by that point
2: I don't think I did. I think I watched it at home.
1: It might have been at home, though, because I, I was a little young for the PG-13 movies.
3: I remember last time we, we spoke, Rita, you had to leave the room when the raptors came into the <laughs> kitchen. Yeah, I did. So I, I want, did you have a similar experience in the when you watched The Lost World?
2: No, I think I was older then by the time I got around to watching it and more used to the dinosaurs.
1: Yeah. I feel like The Lost World wasn't quite as scary as the original Jurassic Park. It had um, less suspense and more action, I would say. It
2: could be also you knew a little more about what to expect.
1: Yeah, that's true.
3: Yeah, so what's the trouble with sequels, isn't it? Because you've already, <laughs> you have already kind of know what you're going to get, don't you? So, you know, changing direction. I suppose going to a different island and it being deserted as opposed to going to an island and it just being finished you know just being built mm-hmm. um, was kind of the angle they went for so so what did you think of both representations starting with the novel what what was what what are your thoughts of the novel in general
1: i think it's really good mm-hmm. i liked i really enjoyed it i think they spent a lot of time on I th- maybe even more time there was a lot in the first jurassic park too but a lot of time with ian malcolm on his like soapbox of really weird theories.
2: Maybe that was Crichton's favorite character.
1: (laughs) It might be. (laughs) So, like, for example, he talks about the Alvarez hypothesis, you know, that an asteroid or meteor whatever impactor wiped out the dinosaurs and how, like, nobody really knew, but then Ian Malcolm figured it out in 1993 with his chaos theory without ever finding a crater. (laughs) Right. And it's like, that's
2: not what happened. But I was impressed (laughs) with the amount of research he clearly did. Because he talks about uh, you know, different ways we looked at dinosaurs when Sir Richard Owen first coined the term and then Victorian era style, these lumbering uh giants that, you know, were kind of dumb. And then we go on to John Ostrom, and I don't think he said Dinosaur Renaissance, but he did talk about, you know, the warm-blooded, active, mm-hmm. smart. And then even later he talked about Jack Horner and his work with like Mayasora. So He clearly knew his stuff. Yes,
1: Yeah, there's a lot of like really good information, but it is mixed in with a lot of like not good information. So (laughs) I guess I I didn't really like what he was sort of making stuff up and fitting it into the Jurassic Park universe, but acting like it was a real thing that happened. Mm. But I did really like, like you're talking about, a lot of, most of it was accurate and interesting.
2: And even when you get into the dinosaur descriptions themselves, a lot of them hold, or a lot of parts of it hold up
1: oh yeah yeah the book descriptions of dinosaurs just on the whole were more realistic and better i think than the descriptions in or the visuals (laughs) in the movie except for maybe the the whole Carnotaurus being invisible thing that's a little out in the weirdness (laughs) level but the rest of it you know there there are lots of elements that i thought were really good and really spot on
3: yeah he, he he I think he's like he—he he, he was known for doing a lot of that, wasn't he? He would take as much fact as he could and build a lot of science into his stories, and then sort of move them around to make the science fit to the to the fictional part of his story. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's nice that it's backed up with uh, bits of research and bits of knowledge that are known to be fact, and he and the fact that he references different people—you um, know—that that that specialize in different subjects—he brings them all into the story even if they're just referenced as people that have written papers or written books or something like that, just to kind of make it feel more grounded. yeah. Um, so that the scientific element feels more believable.
1: Yeah. I think it makes it a really good jumping off point too, because it's like, even if everything isn't hundred percent true, it sort of gives you a little bit of a, a groundwork and you can, you know where to go to find the more scientific side of things. If you're looking for an, a scientific paper after the fact, rather than just a, a fictitious story.
3: Do you have a Uh, a favorite bit in the novel
1: i think you can go first sabrina
2: oh i was thinking i liked how he describes the baby juvenile t-rex
1: yeah i was gonna say the same thing right with the
2: feathers (laughs) the downy (laughs) feather look
1: yes and also just the depiction of them being like good parents Mm -hmm. and you know sort of like caring for their young and just the whole way that the t-rex was depicted it's ironic because usually when people are complaining about jurassic park they're saying like you know, T. Rex. You know, it should maybe it should have had feathers, and it it could see motion, and what's going on with this description well, and all it, that kind of stuff. They
2: do rectify that in the book. Yeah, It can see motion.
1: Yeah, I think they it, they did a really good job, sort of correcting like the one or two weird things that were in the first book slash movie, and also adding to it with yeah the fluffy babies and like the parental care and all that stuff. It just I think the description of T. Rex especially was really well done.
3: Yeah, and it's they concentrate a lot more on its its um, behavioral habits with its young and things like that, don't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As far as the humans go in the story, which are your favorite characters?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of appreciated the whole set of like the engineering type crowd <laughs> that were talking about the design of the vehicle. So you have Levine and Eddie. Earth. And Doc Thorne yeah and thorn yeah i think those guys were probably the part i liked the best
2: i liked sarah harding because we get so much of her backstory and her as a like what her what she does for her work and then how that informs a lot of what she ends up doing on the island and how she sees things and how she's predicting what's gonna happen
3: yeah that's true yeah. she is also really good yeah she has a very different role from the one that's presented in the in the movie doesn't she
2: Oh yes, I was telling Gary. I noticed in the book, uh, the baby T. Rex gets the injured leg, and she says, "Well, you should just kill it because it's not going to make it." Whereas, I believe in the movie, she's the one who insists that they save it.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very different. And also, you've got the romance between her and Malcolm mm-hmm. in the in the movie. It's referenced in the novel that at some point they were together. But she's very, she's a very independent woman. She's very strong. She's quite. Um, She's quite action-packed, I think, in the novel. Yeah. She takes takes charge of a lot of situations as well, doesn't she?
1: She's like the motorcycle riding. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Saves yeah. herself yeah. several times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. right. I think they, it seems like what they did for the movie was they sort of wanted Jeff Goldblum because he was so popular in the Ian Malcolm character. They sort of made him the center of it. So they made, you know, the main woman his girlfriend. They made the main um, girl the child his yeah. daughter basically and you know like all that they sort of like centered it around him
3: they, they built it around his character in particular didn't they
1: yeah which is good i mean i enjoyed that version of it too because i love we being also jeff like goldblum. jeff
3: goldblum <laughs> yeah who doesn't like jeff goldblum <laughs> i think i think everybody does yeah uh, it's a shame that we didn't get um levine i, I like uh, i like levine in the novel yeah I think he's a really good character
1: yeah he's like i I feel like he was sort of like the Vince Vaughn character sort of but also sort of got yeah. rolled into the Eddie character in the movie or I don't
2: More scientific. Yeah. Yeah. Or he in the book. I know,
1: agree. Really yeah, fun. it would have been interesting to see him in the movie.
3: So today I wanted to talk about the first thing that we see when we open the original edition of the novel which is the map of Isla Sorna. The map features um in the latest publication as well of the Lost World by the Folio Society, and it's got a beautiful illustration by Vector That Fox. Accompanying the map uh, in the original edition, we also get a selection of images of dinosaur species listed along with their size in feet. Before we talk about the dinosaurs, it's interesting that we get a map in the Lost World novel, as there wasn't one in in the Jurassic Park novel. What do you think um, of the map? And is there anything of interest that spiked your interest when you first read the novel?
1: I, well, I love maps and I love books that have maps. I don't know. I, I feel like in another life, in an earlier world without GPS, I probably would have been like a cartographer because I love maps so much. So I really appreciate it. I love everything about it. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most is how far the high hide is from the trailers the, and like sort of it's really off there. I never realized how far away it was meant to be from everything else. And that really does add like a, a larger sense of problem to especially Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie where they're trying to like get between these different locations and everything is quite spread out
3: because you've got the the sort of game trail up on the ridge there haven't you as well and and there's a forest between the high hide and the trailer so that's you know that's quite a long distance when you look at the whole size of the island itself yeah Mm -hmm. so is what you're saying Garrett that if you and sabrina were on a road trip back in the 80s you'd have been you'd have been doing the map
2: (laughs) oh yes i I would have gotten us last when we
1: when we do our like dinosaur we've done a couple big dinosaur road trips like we did one up into canada and around like hell creek formation and back to california we did another one in australia i always like make a map beforehand with like every turn on it and then like yeah i I love doing that
3: (laughs) yeah and you've got the map of uh the museums in america haven't you know the north american museum map as well
1: yeah it's getting better with um i think we've got more museums now outside of north america than inside we're starting to flesh out you know europe and asia south america i think and you Africa. said china's
3: quite big as well isn't oh it? yeah China.
1: there's so many museums in china I, it's not even remotely complete for china because they're just
2: they're constantly building yeah
1: there's like a new one every couple months
3: <laughs> really
1: yeah They're well, because they've discover a new dinosaur like every month, too. So Mm -hmm. when they all over the country, too, yeah, they'll find one in a new area and then they'll be like, Oh, we should build a museum here to go with it.
3: (laughs) So, I mean, how many are we talking here? What do you think? What's the current thinking? So,
1: we've got, I think we know about 20 or 30, but I can't find the right coordinates for all of them. So, I think our map is under 20, maybe. Um, But I know there's got to be at least 40 or 50 in the country.
3: Wow. Well, I bet that'll double in no time as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, the US, I think we've got we've got over 100 here. So they've got about as many dinosaurs that they discover there. So I'd think expect to have a similar number of museums. Their
2: museums, on average, are larger than our museums.
1: That's true. Yeah.
3: Really? they got what? Large collections?
1: Yeah, large collections. And I think it's also just sort of the Chinese way of doing things. You build it big and impressive. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the US, a lot of ours are sort of like like roadside fossil stop things or that are like a passion project of one person. Used
2: to be school gymnasiums in some cases. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's a little more haphazard.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. So, looking at the map as well, something that I thought when I was looking across it is you've got sort of a combination of things that we get in the movie, like the worker village, the trailer, and the high high, and also the wreck's nest. And then there's a number of things in here that aren't referenced. So, we've got, say, for example, the raptor nest Mm -hmm. although that does come up in jurassic park Mm three as does the lab as does the lab which makes me wonder whether they use this as sort of a reference material um and there's also characters in here like diego um that's interesting you've got the boathouse and the helicopter landing area so it it gives you quite a lot of information and it's useful when you're reading the novel itself because you can kind of use it as a reference to like you were saying earlier just to how far the high hide is from the trailers yeah it's a little bit like lord of the rings i don't know if you guys have Mm -hmm. read that (laughs) yeah that was one of my same sort of thing (laughs) oh i love that book it's fantastic but having the map of middle earth there yeah it's quite handy really when you're going through the book and you, you you kind of start falling over yourself with the places that they've been or you know where the characters have come from it's quite handy to be able to go back and and look over it Looking across at the dinosaurs listed on the map, I wanted to get your thoughts and expertise on each of the species shown, starting in the top left of the page with the famous Tyrannosaurus rex. So in both the novel and the movie, we get a male and a female rex. The novel has them listed at 42 feet, which is around 13 metres long. Is the size correct for an adult rex? And what is known about the difference in the sizes of the sexes, so the, the male and the female, and also what is known about the nurturing habits.
2: So with T-Rex, we know it may have grown up to about 40 feet, so that's about right.
1: Yeah, I think, and there are estimates that are a little over 40 feet, so mm-hmm. yeah, I think the the length is definitely a fair fair assertion.
2: <laughs> but when it comes to male versus female, that's harder to know, mm-hmm. just because it's really hard to tell, although with Tyrannosaurs, is the first discovery of medullary bone and you can kind of extract from that that's what you what you need for um grown eggs yeah so you can say okay that's probably a female but it's really hard to tell you know which <laughs> which fossils you find this is uh, is this a male or a female i think that's i think we don't really know yeah, at this point
1: yeah there's a couple scientists that think we have enough differences between specifically specimens of t-rex actually where you know this one might be a female this one might be a male and it is based on that medullary bone which is basically like the difference of how the bone looks on the inside the hollow part of the bone but it's really hard to tell if it's medullary bone or if it's just some other type of bone that either decayed a little bit or is still growing or just changing for another reason so it's not really convincing. Most people aren't convinced that we, we have sexual dimorphism in any dinosaur that's been proven. So we don't know which one would be bigger is the short answer.
0: Uh,
3: So what's the, of those that think that they might know which, Hmm. what, what, which way around do they see it?
1: The way they had it was the female is more slender, but maybe longer. And I think maybe the male was more robust Like a little bit wider? No, no, no.
2: the other way around. The robust was the female with a wider pelvis maybe to pass eggs through.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I think Sue the T-Rex is considered to be a female. I think that was one of the early ones. Um, which And it's one of those things too because it's named after Sue Hendricks who like found the specimen it's not named because it's like oh this was a female t-rex we're gonna call it sue but people yeah. <laughs> it's human nature yeah, it's you know deceiving. you like yeah you think of it that way and then there's another really large t-rex called stan which was found also in a similar area but basically the same group of people but it was a guy named stan who found it and it's like you know we don't know which one's male and female but when you hear stan and sue you think the sue one is female the stan is male <laughs> even though
3: that is- the first thing you think, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. So what about their, their nurturing and parental habits? Is there anything known about that?
1: Yeah. So, For example,
3: did they abandon their young? Did they raise them to a certain point?
1: So presumably, most carnivores raise their young to a point.
2: And most herbivores didn't.
1: Yeah, most herbivores didn't. <laughs> so... Um, I guess we'll talk about the herbivores later but as far as t-rex goes yes we think that most likely it did teach its young something about fighting and like the scene you know where they they get a body and bring it back to the babies to eat just like uh, that's another one like in jurassic park 3 you've got that going on with the pterosaurs Mm -hmm. so I think that is a a good guess at what the kind of thing that might have happened I think that's pretty realistic
3: it it, it certainly uh, certainly fits in fits in lovely Mm -hmm. what what What's the science uh, behind that? Why do they think that is the case? Is it because they look to modern uh, animals and see how they behave and sort of translate that back? Or is there some sort of evidence along the way that suggests that they did that?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much modern animals because what you see is like the more intelligent animals tend to be predators because you need more mental faculties to hunt something than to just, you know, like chew on a plant that's near you. and usually there's some training requirement there for like how they're actually going to hunt. And it's a lot harder to go out on your own and get meat than it is as an herbivore mm. to just wander off and find your own plant to eat.
2: I think in terms of the skeletons that have been found too, for carnivores, there are probably more that where you see these um, larger eyes, more like juvenile features. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the herbivores, like sauropods especially, they're they come out looking like Just a small version of the adults.
1: Yeah, precocial is the term. It's Mm -hmm. just they're literally like
2: little adults. Ready to go. (laughs) Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah. Okay. So what? All right. Okay. That's that's fascinating. Why do you think? So what does that represent then? Is that because they, like you say, they're just born and they just wander off and they already they don't need to change the way that they appear, whereas the carnivorous young. Have to be what more endearing to their parents? (laughs) It could be, (laughs) I suppose.
1: There's also
2: well with T. Rex. They think that the juveniles filled a different niche than the adults. They ate different food, and the way they hunted would have been a little bit different. They would have been faster.
1: Yeah. So that the when you were asking, basically, you know, were they raising them to a point? And we think yes, but we don't know what to what point because we we have this like growth curve for T. Rex. There was a really good paper published two years ago by. Who was that in Milwaukee? Thomas Carr? Oh, yeah, Thomas Carr. He's one of the main T Rex experts. And he looked at all these different fossilized uh, bones from T Rex and figured out what age they were and how big they were, and basically found that sort of an S curve. So they grew really slowly for about 10 years or so. And then they had a huge growth spurt in like their teenage years. And then when they were 20 to, you know, early 20s, they tapered off and started growing a lot more slowly. So when you look at that you could imagine they could be living with their parents up to 10 years maybe depending on how long right, okay. the parents were sticking around or it could be that they got big enough they learned enough that so they could go out and catch smaller prey on their own. We j- we don't know enough about the young ones to figure that out yet unfortunately.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating. There's there's a lot to be learned there, isn't there? Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: Got to find good gut contents.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> is that the secret is it (laughs) yeah because
1: if you can find fossilized gut contents or almost as good as fossilized poop as coprolite then you can see what they were eating and if you could find that there was a juvenile t-rex for example say it's like five years old and it's got a bunch of fossilized bones from some huge thing and there's no way it could have killed it you could say okay something probably helped it with that Mm -hmm. or maybe it was scavenging Mm -hmm.
3: yeah yeah it kind of paints the picture doesn't it yeah Okay. So moving on to the I'm gonna pronounce this badly, I'm sure. Is it the Myasaur?
1: Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah, so the oh, they alternate between calling it a Myasora and a Myasaur. Most yeah, but Myasora so is So it's like got the an S name.
3: on the end, um, here on the map. Do you not pronounce the S? Do you drop that right at the end?
2: I think it's Myasora because they wanted it to be a feminine name.
1: Yeah, they talk about how it's using compost to keep its eggs warm, which is like the It's being a good mother lizard, which is what the name means.
2: But then they kind of describe it as they have very short-term memory because they scare them away with a loud noise, take some eggs, and the myosaur are kind of honking at them or making noises, but then the sound stops and then they go back to business as usual and seem to forget about the eggs. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
3: Okay. So the name is Mother Dinosaur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So that's what it translates as. Yeah, that. So, what part, what bit of the Mesozoic era are they from?
1: That's also, that's from the Two Medicine Formation, which is a little bit before the Hell Creek, but it's in the same areas in like Montana in the U.S. mostly. Um,
2: it's late Cretaceous.
1: Yeah, late, late Cretaceous, like, like T Rex, but a little bit before T Rex, probably. Um, there were other Tyrannosaurs found in that formation, like I think a Displetosaurus specimen, Displetosaurus Horneri, I think was the one that was named recently from that formation. And, It is really interesting because the way it was originally found was at a place called Egg Mountain, which is literally just like a ton of eggs. And that's why they named it Mother Lizard, because it's like it was found with all these eggs. And they're like, look at it taking care of its eggs. Good job, dinosaur.
3: (laughs) And and thus the name was born. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So they're listed at about 30, well, 30 feet is what it says here in the description, about nine meters. Would you say that was about correct?
2: I believe so i'm trying to remember exactly
1: i think yeah it's in the right ballpark because it is a a big ish hadrosaur and that's about yeah. what you'd expect i don't know if we have a really good adult specimen to know the exact length on but it's it's in that ballpark
3: yeah okay okay so next along we've got uh, pachycephalosaurus mm-hmm. uh 25 feet
1: my I didn't look it up, but that seems way too long.
2: Uh, I They're Does closer it? to about 15 feet, four and a half meters long. I yeah. had
3: them smaller in my mind as well.
1: I think if you're looking like in uh, Jurassic World, the original Jurassic World, um, did they have, or Molak was in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, I think there was a Pachycephalosaurus in Jurassic World but only sort of up on the monitor when Claire first comes into the control room. They're talking about how it's escaped its ch- its area or something oh. like that. So they've had to trank it and they've got it led down on the floor or something like that. Yeah.
1: So, oh, there was a Pachycephalosaurus but, in the Lost World movie, though. They got it with those like airbags, right?
3: Yeah, that's it. That's it. And um, it referred to as Friar Tuck by Roland Tempo. just <laughs> oh, bold round dome head. It's perceived to have been used for for. Well, it's something some of the thinking is that it was used for combat, um you know, mm-hmm. butting the, the heads together. Um and it seemed like you say seen busting through the side of the jeep. Yeah. What's what's known about the behaviors of this dinosaur? I mean what, what do, do they think that they did fight with their heads?
1: That's another one that kind of goes back and forth because if you look at the skull itself and you study like okay, what what's the use of that big bulky because it's a pretty solid piece of bone on the top of its head there if you look at it you're like okay yeah that could probably take a pretty good hit and not break but as we know from you know injuries for people playing football american football and the rest of the world football hitting your head doesn't necessarily just because your head doesn't break open doesn't necessarily mean that it's something you want to (laughs) do (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of other yeah. injuries you could sustain so other people have tried to look at you know how strong its neck was for example mm-hmm. and would it break its neck butting heads and there's sort of differing opinions on like how hard would they hit neck uh, their heads together maybe they wouldn't hit their heads together but they would sort of go next to each other and bash their heads into each other's sides
2: yeah the flank butting
1: yeah so there's there's different ideas there it could also just be a display structure where you know they didn't really use them for much at all other than just Look at me, I got this big impressive head.
2: Before we knew that it was a <laughs> dome on the head, scientists thought they were kneecaps. Oh really? Yeah. That's
3: hilarious.
0: Oh really? <laughs> yeah. That was but in the eighteen hundreds. Dinosaur, I mean, holy <laughs> moly. It's yeah. like well,
3: like a sauropod with huge round kneecaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also with their heads being kind of round like that, that if you're if you've got a head to head impact, you're not really you're kinda of gonna like skim off each other yeah. almost, mm-hmm. aren't
1: you? yeah so it's not I don't know. I don't think the going head to head full speed is the most likely thing, but that doesn't mean they weren't you know hitting like their some... heads on well, each they, other. In they some found other way.
2: some injuries, some pathologies on Pachyuffphilus or domes. So. Mm. yeah, something happened with right. them.
3: <laughs> Do you think the uh the one that we see in the lost world movie is a an accurate depiction of what they would have looked like?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty good.
3: Although,
2: mm-hmm. oh, didn't they make it look like Stigimoloch?
1: The one in Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, Stigimoloch. Oh, that's the one. But I the thinking. one in the yeah. Lost World. Yeah, I think that was a pretty good, probably a more accurate description than you get in the book. Considering that in the book they're calling them twenty-five feet, and they didn't show them as twenty-five feet in the movie. I don't think it looked more like fifteen.
3: Yeah, I'd say they look, they were yeah they were they were smaller in the movie definitely than than twenty-five feet. OK, so that's interesting to hear then, because to me, they always they they looked right. I know you think, well, how, how can that be the case? But it, they just looked in proportion. And when you see the skull versus what we see in the movie, you can kind of fit the two things together.
1: They did a good job in the book also of describing how like with Pachycephalosaurus, no one knows what the heads are for. And they talk about maybe it was headbutting, maybe it was competing for mates and they only did it once in a while and all that. I think they did a really good job summarizing it. And we haven't really learned that much more in the last twenty-five years about what they might have been for.
3: Does anybody specialize in that, or is it one of this one of those sort of species that there was a sort of an explosion of uh, intrigue initially, and it's kind of been sidelined, and, and there's not really much investigation anymore as to what those things, what you know, like its dome head and things like that, were used for.
1: They're pretty rare is the, the big problem with Pachycephalosaurus. We, they're very uncommon. So like the, the areas where you find them, you're way more likely to find something like a triceratops or a hadrosaur. And Pachycephalosaurus, you're lucky if you find it one out of every hundred bones, basically. Really? So yeah, a lot of the work is coming out. I think there's been a few in Asia that are more like Stygimoloch type with like much smaller bumps on the head. Um, as far okay. as Pachycephalosaurus goes, I don't think there's really been too much lately.
2: Maybe oh, okay. close to a decade.
1: Yeah.
3: Next up, we've got Pro mm-hmm.
2: um,
3: which featured in the first book, uh, but wasn't introduced to us movie-wise until The Lost World.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, they've, they've got it listed at three feet, about a meter in length. Um, famously known for the death of John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Is there anything known as to whether or not they had a poison in their bite? Which would cause things like hallucination, or if they didn't, any species of dinosaur?
2: There's no evidence of that.
1: (laughs) That's the short answer. Yeah,
2: in in any species of dinosaur.
1: (laughs) But that doesn't mean so. It's not like Dilophosaurus spitting venom, where you know if something's going to spit venom, it's probably going to have some pretty obvious signs in its skeletal structure. Because I mean, it could be all in soft tissue, but if you're talking about you know like places for venom to be stored and things like that you might be able to find that in a skull with Signathus, it's like they they basically describe it more like how a komodo dragon is potentially where it's just got like gross bacteria more or less in its mouth and that's the kind of thing where it would never fossilize Mm -hmm. so that's a that's very much within the realm of we can just guess whatever we want for a science fiction book because no one knows. Well,
2: I thought it was interesting how in the book they eat fresh feces, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. uh, in real life it's probably insects, lizards, small prey kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit different.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, in the first novel, they were used as a cleanup. They? Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I'm surprised I didn't just use like dung beetles or something.
3: Yeah, yeah. Have a proven track record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, we've got Apatosaurus. Another returning dinosaur from the first novel, um, and surely a favorite of Sabrina's in oh, this yes. novel, I would imagine. The <laughs> um, we, we don't get a, an on-screen appearance until Jurassic World, um, but we've got it listed at 80 feet, so 24 meters. What what do we think about the size?
2: It's a little, there? It's a little bit bigger. Uh, I think on average they were between 69, 75 feet, or 21 to almost 23 meters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But again, with with sauropods, you don't usually find the entire skeleton. So figuring out the right. length is probably the hardest thing. We'd be better off trying to figure out the weight. Mm. <laughs> and compare the weights of the animals.
3: How on earth do you do you figure out the weight? Oh, if you so haven't got a full skeleton.
1: Yeah, that one's actually pretty interesting. So you can there's a few ways to do it. One benefit to the weight is that the end of the tail and the you know the head and stuff don't contribute that much. So if you find sort of the middle chunk of the animal, you've got most of the the size of it there and then you can either do what they call the convex hull method and minimum convex hull where you basically draw a body around the bones based on living analogs and try to see like about how big the meat would have been around the skeleton and then have an estimation of what that meat would have weighed (laughs) or you can do the like circumference of the femur and just do some simple math on well animal femurs a more uh, scale up at about this rate as the weight goes up, and so if we've got the the weight bearing bones, we've got all the weight bearing bones, we can figure out about how much weight it was holding up.
3: So, what sort of
2: weight did they do they attribute to Apatosaurus? It's like eighteen to twenty five short tons.
1: Yeah, which is about the same as a metric
3: ton.
2: Got very it, heavy. <laughs> that
3: is very heavy. Yeah, definitely a, a, enough weight to ripple a glass of water.
1: I oh, think s- maybe. The interesting thing with that is they have the, the sauropods may be more likely, but if you've ever been to a zoo and been near an elephant, they don't really shake the ground because they have big spongy pads on the bottom of their feet. And we think that sauropods, we actually have some fossilized evidence to see that sauropods had a lot of like fatty pads on the bottom of their feet too. So they would have had a lot of like shock absorption as they walked.
3: So, not just stamping around the place. Yeah. <laughs> an, absolute ra- ra- an absolute racket.
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose if they're, it's like a stampede or something and they're like, you know, I'm not trying to walk gently, I'm right. just trying to go as fast as possible, then you're going yeah. you, to see it. a
2: single one walking. They probably don't want to. They're
1: walking normally. Yeah. Draw
2: it unnecessary attention to itself
1: yeah the same applies actually even more so to t-rex because t-rex actually walks on its tiptoes yeah and they their feet actually bend quite a bit as they step it's not like our feet that's just like a big you know simple blocky thing that doesn't bend much they like their whole toes it's really fascinating when you look at a close-up even of like a chicken walking they're very graceful and they set down really gently on their toe tips and then they sort of gently lay down the rest of their foot and the same thing when they take off and they probably made very little vibration at all, especially because they're hunting. So they want to be really cautious and mm. sneaking up on things. So I think the the apatosaurus maybe would have shaken things, or when things are stampeding. But I don't think you would ever seen really a T. Rex causing much ground vibration.
3: So segueing so segueing away from the from the size of the apatosaur one of the one of the dinosaurs that features in the novel that we don't get on the on the map here but I thought it would be interesting to learn something about would be, was the musosaurus musosaurus right mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so so what does musosaurus mean
2: it means mouse lizard and that's because so when this book was written i think it was fairly accurate how it's described um, but now we know that it was not at all a mouse lizard, but they found they found juveniles and infant skeletons at first that were about mouse-sized, so they thought, oh, okay, it didn't get very big.
1: Basically fresh out of the egg. Mm-hmm. So that's how big they were when they hatched.
3: Yes. Yeah, because that's <laughs> what threw me. With them being a sauropod, I was thinking, how, does, is it possible to have a sauropod this small uh, you know, when it's an adult?
2: With later specimens, they weren't described till 2013, so well after this book came out, They found they could grow up to 10 feet or or three-ish meters long, so much bigger.
1: But that one, Musaurus is the one out of all the dinosaurs in the book that have changed by far the most since this book came out.
2: But uh, even just in the last couple of years, we've learned a lot more about this dinosaur. Like we know now it didn't live in the late Triassic. It actually was in the early Jurassic. And that, I mean, obviously it was bigger. We also know that it went from Bipedal to quadrupedal. I think Actually, it was the other way. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, quadrupedal to bipedal. Just like humans. Yeah, that's how. So I we remember. start
1: out crawling and then start out. Within, you know, you get to walking later. That's how they. So were. that
2: it would hatch and then within a, and be walking on all fours and then within a year it would get to two legs, and then we also oh, really it just like last month or so a paper came out about how they were living in herds, and kind of taking care. Like depending on what age you're in, you had a different role to play in these herds so it's pretty amazing nice
3: so stegosaurus next up um beautifully presented in the lost world movie i think um they've listed it at 25 feet eight meters are we we thinking that's about right
2: yeah there's some estimates it was about 30 feet or nine meters
1: oh a rare estimating too small for a big herbivore (laughs) (laughs)
3: yeah (laughs) yeah it's gone the other way i think the ones we see in the film are, are quite big aren't they they're they're depicted as being quite
1: large yeah i'm sure Mm -hmm. they're bigger than real life usually they're scaled up about 50 percent. i would say from real life in the movies yeah
3: so so what what could you tell me about the plates across their back and the spikes on their tails what what were they believed to have been used for
2: my favorite theory is that they could blush with their spike or with their uh, plates on the back because of the was it the blood vessels
1: yeah there's a lot of vasculature on the surface of the plates so you can see all these pits we actually have a replica stegosaur plate that we got a i think it was part of our wedding registry yeah
2: it was a wedding present (laughs) somebody gave it to us nice um
1: and yeah so you can see like it looks like there was a lot of blood flow that could go to the surface of the plates and uh yeah like sabrina said one possible reason it could be for thermoregulation but it could also be for display and they like lit up basically like our cheeks do.
3: Oh really? So were they were the plates fossilized, or were there fossilized imprints of the plates? Are they are they made? Were they made of bone at all?
1: Yeah. So the the plates on a stegosaur are the same thing that you get on an ankylosaur. They're called osteoderms. So they're actually a bone that grows within the skin. They're not actually connected to the skeleton. They blo- they start growing in between layers of skin, and then they grow up and out of the back of the animal. It's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but a stegosaurus it's just one of the most ridiculous examples you could possibly make of it where they grow so big that they look like a plate <laughs> and it yeah. just grew straight out of the skin like that so yeah it's is there any
3: modern is there li- any living animals uh today that have that sort of growth where the, you've got the bone growing separate to the uh to the the main skeleton yeah you
1: get there are things that have osteoderms. So like crocodiles are probably the easiest example. They've You can see them on their back. That what, that's what give them the mm. little bumpy backs. That's actually osteoderms there. But there's nothing that comes even close to Stegosaurus with like huge plates. That's mm-hmm. like such a weird thing. And we think it's possible that they were either for blushing and, you know, had a softer tissue on the outside. But it's also possible they had a keratin covering on them and were big and possibly even like sharp in a way. <laughs> so... Yeah, they could have been even more impressive in one way or another in life than they are even in their huge fossilized form.
3: Next up, we've got Triceratops. Um, We've got them listed at 29 feet, 9 meters, so slightly bigger than Stegosaurus in the novel. What do we think about
2: that? Very close. It's been estimated about 30 feet.
1: Yeah. 9 meters, yeah. Okay. The interesting thing with Triceratops is... Of all the dinosaurs, I think it's the shortest tail I can think of, other than like the really bird-like ones. It was almost Mm. more like a rhino is a pretty good depiction Mm -hmm. of a Mm. triceratops. So it's got a huge head. Its head is maybe like a third of the length of its body almost. It's just a massive and really heavy head. And then it's got almost no tail on the other side. So even though it's similar in length to a stegosaurus, it probably was a lot more massive, I would guess, because it's just... That tail is not nearly as heavy.
2: It's interesting. In the book, they talk about Stegosaurus as having rhino-like skin and Triceratops as being about the size of a hippo.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Triceratops is way bigger than a hippo. That's for sure. (laughs) I mean, they did talk about island dwarfism, though, so it could be a small Triceratops. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we get a juvenile Triceratops in the book as well, don't we? When we've got Eddie Carr driving through um, when they first get to the island, and mm-hmm. then the Triceratops come out through the, you know, they're flattening down the trees. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, would the juvenile, with them being herbivores, would the juvenile be with the the mother?
1: Well, for Triceratops, one interesting thing is we have like another weird mammal bias, which is, you know, like all mammals need to stay with their moms because of the requirement of milk. But yeah birds and dinosaurs don't have that requirement so that's why we usually think like herbivores are probably just basically off on their own because there's nothing really connecting them once they're born so there there have been some proposals there are a lot of bone beds that they find that have a whole bunch of ceratopsians buried together so there is a reasonably good chance that they stuck together in some way or another but we don't really know that we don't know of anything that would sort of require them to be together
3: Oh, okay. It's interesting. So I wonder why that is then that they find them together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, a lot of times it's groups of adults, one of these things is that ceratopsian skulls just fossilize really well because it's this huge mass mm. of bone. And also, I yeah. think it's really hard to eat. One of the things that stops animals from fossilizing <laughs> is other animals eat them. But yeah, nothing's yeah. going to try to eat a triceratops skull. What are you going to do? It's like basically completely useless. It's like a piece of plastic sitting out there. It's just going to keep sitting there. So
3: yeah, it, it's like yeah. there's rack of ribs you get at like a steakhouse. And yeah. You just think there's nothing on this. And you just spend, you spend half an hour trying to get your teeth around it. Yeah. <laughs> complete waste of your time but it's just sauce on sauce on a bone really isn't it (laughs) (laughs) so i understand i'm I'm, i hope i'm not wrong about this but there's evidence of triceratops fighting t-rex in Mm -hmm. the fossil record
1: yeah we've seen we've seen um basically like a hole in a t-rex i want to say skull for that seems to match roughly a triceratops horn and we also have essentially bite marks on frills of triceratops.
3: All oh, right. Okay. And they can match the two in, can they? As if that that, that they would would have battled.
1: Yeah, especially for the teeth mark, because T Rex really is a very unique animal. So it's pretty their teeth stand out. And when you see that it bit something, it's not usually too difficult to tell that it was a T Rex because its teeth are just so huge. They're so thick compared to most other animals' teeth. So yeah.
3: <laughs> is that what makes t-rex so unique then with you saying it's quite a unique uh, it's a very unique animal the yeah teeth.
1: it's a combination of the teeth and the huge super powerful head
2: yeah so it could crush bone they, okay
1: they go hand in hand for sure
3: so it would it would just have the power of its jaw would it
1: yeah and the i always think of the teeth as like serrated bananas that's sort of the, <laughs> the appearance that they have so like if you imagine you know you're trying to cut something with a thin bladed knife, like it works, but then at a certain point, if you're trying to cut something really hard, you can't slice through it anymore. You have to basically use a hammer to break it. The T-Rex tooth functions as both the hammer and the knife because it's so bulky and powerful that it can literally like smash through things like a hammer, but it can also cut because it's serrated on the sides. It's just a ridiculous evolutionary ability that that animal
3: had. So you could argue then that the annoyingly uh, sparse triceratops head was uh, was uh, quite an easy target for a T-Rex. And it could probably smash through that, <laughs> could it? Would, we, would you say?
1: It might. The thing that's interesting about animals is usually they don't like... It's not about what they could. It's about what they want to do. And since there isn't... Mm. I guess when they're fighting, you're right. So when they're fighting, then... If the, say the T-Rex is really desperate and it doesn't usually want to go after a Triceratops because it's got these big horns and it's got some, you know, tough skin Mm. and maybe it's in a group and all that kind of stuff, but it gets to a point where it's like, oh, I have to eat this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the T-Rex is going to be successful some of the time. The tricky thing is if it gets poked enough in the process of biting it, it might win the battle and be able to eat some Triceratops, but it might have some some terminal injuries.
3: Right. Yeah, that's quite a risky business, actually, because, uh, you know, you've got those horns and they could probably cause quite a lot of damage, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, and they've got no antibiotics or Band-Aids or anything, so a big gash Any in your side of infection is
2: the problem. is the end. Yeah,
1: yeah,
3: it is. It's a slow, painful death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awaits. <laughs> so in the movie, we get uh, the Triceratops bursting through the hunter's camp, smashing into a jeep, sending it flying up into the air in a fireball <laughs> and smashing into a tree. So I just wonder... Could that happen? Are they known to have been that strong to, to move a, a car or a, or a vehicle of some sort? What sort of strength are we looking in triceratops? Because they look quite bulky and muscly.
1: Yeah, I've, I feel like that's a lot of that Like in movies. Whenever any car crash happens, it just explodes mm. for like no reason. <laughs> I think you get you know, a little bit of that it effect. It could be
2: under the right conditions with enough adrenaline.
1: Yeah, it could certainly, I mean, even a rhino, you know, if you're driving through a wildlife park and a rhino starts running at your car, I don't think anybody's thinking, well, my car is big and heavy. It's not going to get moved. Like I, I I think a rhino could do some damage to a car and a triceratops is much bigger than a rhino. So it's going to be able yeah. to certainly do a lot of damage, probably destroy it if it really like there's one moment where I think it was dodson is trying to drive and there's some triceratops in the street and he's honking at him and he nudges one and it like bumps his car back and he goes oh i shouldn't do that it's going to break my radiator it's like yeah that's i think that's very safe (laughs) safe assumption it might destroy the car that way but i don't think it's going to go flying
3: solid strong strong animals really yeah movable i would imagine
1: yeah, I I really enjoyed that scene actually, where he's trying to drive down the road and there's these triceratops laying there, and he just realizes I I, I guess I'm getting out of the car.
3: This is pointless. Yeah, because his character's so impatient in the in the second novel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Dodgson, he's just he's an arse, really, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's not he's not a very likable person. He's quite happy to to throw people under the bus. Yeah, as the saying goes. I think um, well, he, he made a really... by trying to kill Sarah, doesn't he?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. He made a better villain than the villains in the movie, I think. Because in the movie, it was like you were rooting for him a little bit because he kind of wanted him to catch mm. a dinosaur and bring it back.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. He reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Dieter Stark, I suppose. hmm You know, he's kind of like the baddie-baddie in the lost yeah. world, isn't he? Yeah. Maybe the that's... One we're one we're not supposed to like. Yeah.
1: That might be why they added in Dieter because they took out... Dodgson they needed a a real villain
3: (laughs) Mm. I like the fact that we get Dodgson in the second novel because obviously he's he's written into the first one in a little bit more detail than we get in the first movie Mm -hmm. um and it's like I know that that Crichton was uh you know sort of nudged along to write the sequel he'd never written a sequel before um because of the success of Jurassic Park so the idea was that that it was written the novel was written with a sequel movie in mind. Mm. So it's interesting that he brought Dodgson back into the fold um, and they didn't go down that route in the movie. (laughs)
2: That's true.
0: (laughs) I wonder if it
1: it could be because, like you said, he was barely in the first movie. So maybe they thought like, oh, it's going to be weird if we bring back this character that was barely even in the first movie. I don't know. Yeah,
3: yeah. Hard to write him in. But he's a great character in the novel. I I think he's... Everything he's written in a very unlikable way in every situation that he's in, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? So you're not really rooting for him ever, are yeah. you? You're just, you're just surprised he manages to get out of trouble as much as he does until it all goes wrong for him in the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's not the greatest companion. In uh, fact, Basil- <laughs> Basilton and um, King don't really, uh, they suffer at the hands of Dodgson's <laughs> yep. um, direction, really, don't they? Yeah. It so, uh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't end well for them at all.
1: Yeah, the baddies had a much worse go of it in the novel, *The Lost World*, than they did in the movie. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah. They don't. They don't. They don't don't have an enjoyable time, particularly at the hands of the Rex. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Although, actually, I
1: suppose did the in the movie when the boat arrived, everybody's dead, right? So I guess they all none of them really made it back. Mm.
3: Yeah, uh, true. If they were, if they all traveled on the boat.
1: They didn't really um, let you know, did they? If there were other people no. that made it back separately.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a funny. That's a funny scene as well because I always I always struggle with the the idea that they because there's a guy's arm hanging off the um, <laughs> yeah. the wheel that steer, steers the boat, isn't there? Yeah. And then there's another guy's arm holding the the button that that has the cargo hold door, mm-hmm. and the Rex is inside the hole. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, how you know, how did how did these guys get eaten? Yeah, mm-hmm. if, the, if the Rex is in the you know locked away.
1: And but when did know. it happen? Because it's like, did it happen right when he closed it, which was probably presumably very close to the island, or did it happen right before they crashed into the pier? Because the guy had to steer all the way there.
3: <laughs> yeah, because he it would have been he would have been on a very good course. <laughs> right, yeah. when they came off the island. Wouldn't it <laughs> and What are the chances? Yeah, I mean. He was a, he was a real pro (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you. He he really knew what he was doing. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a funny one that it was kind of put in, wasn't it? But I I know that the, the end of the movie, the lost world changed considerably, didn't it? I think it was written um, kind of last minute, the San Diego part. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um,
3: I I love that part. Yeah. Oh no, me too. I think it's, I think it's so, it's so cool. I love it. I love it stomping through the city, that moment where it, lifts its head and bends the traffic light uh, (laughs) in half just the sheer sort of presence and power of it it's a really good sequence but i think initially the story went along the lines of some sort of um pterosaur attack in the worker village Mm. and then they escaped on bikes and parachutes i think because i know there was an ian malcolm dr malcolm toy with a parachute paraglider (laughs) and that was already produced before they Steven Spielberg changed the script. Uh, he wanted to go sort of down the King Kong route, didn't he? Bringing back the dinosaurs, uh, bringing the dinosaurs back to the city. Yeah. So yeah, that's no, interesting. It, it's good.
1: They just they just couldn't wait to get to the logical point in the story. They, you know, because if you get to the Jurassic World Dominion, that's the perfect time to have these dinosaurs everywhere. But they didn't want to wait a few movies later to establish the whole <laughs> logical progression. They're like, how do we get this dinosaur to a city as fast as possible?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what was quite cool about that is when they did the, I think it's, is it the DPG, which is the online site that sort of backs up the storyline between Jurassic world and fallen kingdom. They released like a home video, uh, like a pretend home video of somebody filming the wrecks in San Diego. Hmm. So I don't know if you guys have seen that. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah. So it's just like it's supposed to be like a member of public, member of the public that was in San Diego when the '97 incident happened, (laughs) and it's this little bit of video of it just like stomping past it down down (laughs) down the street, and it's all you know, it's all 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 of the pictures sort of pictures pixelating, and the the audio is not great. So that's quite cool. So they've sort of tried to tie it in, really. That's cool. So back to the the list of dinosaurs we've got here. Next up, we've got Paras... I can't say it. Say it for me. Go on, guys. Do it. Parasaurolophus. (laughs) Yes, that's it. I just fall over that word all of the time. So we get a great scene in The Lost World with this uh, dinosaur when they bring it down, you know, um, on the game trail. Mm -hmm. And they're throwing down the ropes and trying to to knock it down to the ground. I mean, it's a very sad scene, but it's really well done. I wondered... do you think that's a good representation of how they looked?
1: Yeah, I think they they describe it as having like the long crest making deep noises. I think after, shortly after, actually, this book came out, maybe it was before, I'm not sure. It was in the 90s. Somebody did a project where they cut through a parasaurolophus crest, looked at the internal structure of it, and they saw the nasal passages, and they did a calculation for what the sound would have been like if it breathe, you know, basically took a deep breath rapidly through its nasal mm. passages. And it is sort of like trombone-like.
2: <laughs> so All right. Okay.
1: It's pretty cool. So yeah, I think the the making deep noises the way they did. Um the only things that I thought were a little bit weird, they describe it as having a light green underbelly, which is weird because it's the wrong type of counter shading. So we we have discovered this in dinosaurs now. There's actually this really amazing specimen. I think it's from Mongolia. Is it the Satakosaurus? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's this Setakosaurus, okay. which is it's rel- it's related to Triceratops, um distantly, I guess. But it has countershading preserved on it because the skin, there's a little bit of skin preserved, fossilized, and we can see the color of it um, by looking at the melanosomes and some of the stuff. It's really neat. And you can actually tell that its bottom was darker than the top, its back. And that's common for basically all animals of prey and also a lot of predatory animals because what happens is when you're on Earth and you're out in the sun, since the sun is above, it lights up your back. And to blend into the background better, if you have a darker back and a lighter underbelly, it makes it harder to see you because you don't have... Otherwise, like your back will be bright and your underside will be darker mm-hmm. and it makes it easier to pick animals out of a crowd. So yeah, you always see these this counter shading going on. So for some reason, they did the counter shading reversed.
2: Well, the the other thing that is more recent, too, is we always talk about hadrosaurs as the duckbill dinosaurs. But now we think yeah. that instead of like a duck bill, it was more pointed beak.
1: Yeah. So we think that they basically had a... Um, it is a beak, but it like overlaps. <laughs> so it... I
3: believe you guys have just covered this, haven't you, in your most recent episode? Yeah, on your, mm-hmm. on your podcast.
1: Exactly. Thank you for mentioning that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so it's, it,
3: it's um it's a uh, I can't say the word. Paracerolophus. It's like a gripposaurus No, what's the um, what's the material that's in the horn? Keratin. Keratin. That's it. Yeah. So the keratin comes all the way from the back over down to the beak doesn't it exactly Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so it would have i don't think they really depicted it that way and they talk about having lips and licking its lips but it wouldn't have really had lips it would have had a a beaky keratin covering
2: but that's something that came up in the science much later
1: yeah
3: yeah that's a very recent thing isn't it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah there's been i mean there's been like little bits because there have been some good fossils or they you know they call it like the trachodon mummy which is basically yeah you know, like a hadrosaur that we could see a little bit of keratin on. So there were some people that had noticed it, but it wasn't really commonly discussed in the literature until recently.
3: So next up we have the very famous Velociraptor um featured in every single Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movie. Yep. I believe uh six feet, two meters. Now I know there's Quite a lot of controversy about Velociraptor in Jurassic Park because it's much different to what we believe Velociraptor was in the fossil record, and more likely to be based on—is it Deinonychus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in size, at least. I wonder: uh, was is there any uh, anything in the fossil record to lead us to believe that Deinonychus or Velociraptor, it, whether either of them were ruthless hunters, were they pack hunters? Uh, were they known to be aggressive animals or would they tend to scavenge?
1: Yeah, don't. There's a little bit. So, with Deinonychus, is has been found basically with Tenontosaurus, which is a hadrosaur, you know, not okay. too different than, say, like Parasaurolophus or Myasura. And the presumption is that Deinonychus was hunting in packs Tenontosaurus. That's been a thing that sort of is commonly discussed um so yeah that's it's possible that they were doing that kind of thing
3: and is there is there any evidence of them being um carnivals
1: yeah that was that was a really interesting piece of it where they're talking about how like they did feeding frenzies and all that kind of stuff so that Mm. happens with lizards today komodo dragons yeah with komodo dragons it can occasionally happen maybe with crocodilians as well I liked yeah. how they sort of phrased it as like, they didn't, basically they were raised without parents. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know how to behave with each other. <laughs> they were just <laughs> like mm-hmm. the wild, you know, like- Only the
2: meanest survive.
1: Exactly, yeah. It's like their ids coming out or whatever um and it also that also reminded me of both jurassic world and jurassic world fallen Fallen kingdom with indoraptor and indominus rex they talk about that exact same thing where like we need to get a parent for this thing and like indominus rex and indoraptor are so crazy and angry because they've just been raised in the sterile environment without their own kind so i i really like that i think that was a pretty clever idea and i don't i don't know i know i don't think anybody's ever tested to see like if you take these animals and like raise them Mm -hmm. without their parent creatures do they get more aggressive um but we don't i don't think there's any specific stuff for Deinonychus or velociraptor being a carnivore but we do have other theropods you mean
2: a cannibal yeah
1: that are that are cannibalistic so the first one that was ever really reported was a dinosaur called majungasaurus which is from madagascar um Basically, like it's got these tooth marks on it, and they match the teeth of other Majungasaurus. And we don't know of other, any other animals around there that had that type of teeth. So it seems like they're probably eating each other. And then there's also potentially evidence of Allosaurus doing the same thing, where there are scrape marks on a toe bone, and they look just like Allosaurus teeth marks. And a toe is not the kind of thing that you like accidentally bite or you bite while you're fighting. That's like a,
2: that's very much a- There is actually some evidence with a Velociraptor. They have one skull with two rows of small punctures that's about the same size and spacing of Velociraptor teeth Mm. and no signs of healing. So it probably died from its fellow Velociraptor wounds.
1: That could have been like a, a regular sort of fight or it could have been a scavenge, I suppose. But either one of those would apply to what you're talking about, right? Where they're yeah. they could be feeding and then get a little too <laughs> rowdy.
3: Yeah, I suppose as well. Like with you saying about a bigger tooth, it's, uh, sorry, a toe. That's more of like a an aperitif really, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. not. It's, it's not. It's not the main. It's not the main bit you go for if you're trying to eat deer, is it? <laughs> yeah. So last but not least on this on this uh, page here, where we've got the pictures of the dinosaurs with the map, is Carnotaurus. So this is really interesting because we don't see Carnotaurus in the movies until we get to Fallen Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether or what you think of the depiction of Carnotaurus in Fallen Kingdom versus the fossil record, how alike did they design it?
1: Yeah, I think from my memory, the Carnotaurus in Fallen Kingdom was fairly good, but I think it has the same typical problem that happens in sort of making these dinosaurs look a little bit more charismatic and like interesting from a standpoint of like to look at and that's that mm-hmm. they tend to make their heads a lot wider so t-rex had a really wide head and it's depicted pretty accurately there are you know some people that are really into t-rex and know all the minutiae of you know like the way the jaw bends and where its eyes yeah. are placed and all that can find problems with it but it, overall its general dimensions are about right most of the other dinosaurs have much narrower heads and they're more like if you imagine i don't know like a i guess some birds have pretty narrow heads as well if you take the feathers off so that's kind of not a great example but <laughs> <laughs> but the, they just have like much narrower heads i don't know how else to say it and what, Karni- do,
3: what do they put that down to
1: it's it's sort of like the ancestral trait. They just had like pretty skinny heads and they didn't have a reason to get wider until some of them needed to like T-Rex needed a lot, of, a lot of power. So they needed these big muscle attachments and that sort of broadened mm. its head out. Um, Carnotaurus had a pretty, pretty narrow head. And as a result, when you see it in the movie and it's like a much wider head and they describe it as like the bull lizard too. That's what it, its name means. It, it gives you that sense, but it's just, it's sort of, it makes everything seem like it's a T-Rex or like a smaller version of T-Rex.
2: Oh, I wasn't thinking that because you've got the- um, Horns? The horns and kind of the way they make the eyes. And it was quite a bit smaller than the T-Rex, right? In Fallen Kingdom, there's that scene where the, uh, was it the gyrosphere? Mm. It's yeah. 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 And, and the T-Rex kind of saves the day and just like pushes over this Carnotaurus <laughs> that is- much smaller because
3: yeah, on this map we've got the rex at 42 feet and they've got the carnotaurus at 25 feet haven't they
2: mm-hmm. yeah I and think that Carnot- was pretty accurate uh might have gotten a little bigger maybe up to 30 feet
1: but... yeah the carnotaurus in the map looks a little bit more like ceratosaurus to me than carnotaurus mm. it's got the i guess those are horns above its eyes but it's it's got kind of a round head it's almost as tall as it is long like a mm. Giant. Mm. <laughs> it's a really interesting head. carnotaurus is one of the really coolest dinosaurs it's very unique
2: well, that I mean it, yeah, it, it also. Is, isn't it? it 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 did get wide towards the base of mm-hmm. the head cuz there's a there's that theory that it used its head like a hatchet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> just like Allosaurus, <laughs> they have that theory there too. Yeah. Cuz it's got so how
3: do you mean like a hatchet?
2: Like um it just kind of strikes the prey multiple times.
1: Yeah. Oh, right, Okay. Essentially its teeth aren't its teeth are much not like T-Rex, so they're they're the typical narrow Sharp knife like teeth, and it wouldn't have been able to.
3: Sharp, pointy bananas, I think it (laughs) is. Exactly. (laughs) Uh,
1: Non banana teeth. (laughs) Right, okay. So they, but they think they could open their mouth pretty wide, and then so they're basically using their top teeth like you know the ones on their palate to potentially like sort of slam into animals some people think that's ridiculous other people think it's the most likely thing they lived around a lot of sauropods so there's a big question of like what did they eat because it's too big to probably survive on eating small stuff exclusively but it seems too small Mm -hmm. to hunt these really big sauropods so maybe there's been theories that maybe they sort of like slammed their teeth into a sauropod and waited for the sauropod to bleed to death and then eat them that way,
3: like work on the legs or something like that to slow yeah. them down.
1: <laughs> yeah, or just yeah, just like keep poking at them, you know, sort of like bleeding them to death.
3: In the novel, we get them as a pair. I wonder does do is there any anything in the fossil record to say that they they lived in pairs or even packs or were they did they tend to be solitary?
1: I think we really only have one. Good Carnotaurus, at least that I'm familiar with. So I don't, I don't think we've found pairs of them.
3: Yeah, no, that's interesting. What, what did you guys think of that part of the novel where we get the reveal?
2: <laughs> They're just together, and then they keep camouflaging.
1: It's the, mm. it's the main thing I, the two main things I remembered from reading it much longer ago was Sarah on the motorcycle and shooting at Velociraptors, and the fact that Carnotaurus camouflaged because yeah, it was like, <laughs> that was very surprising. And it was equally surprising that there was a dinosaur camouflaging and that someone was like, oh yeah, that's a Carnotaurus. Like it was a totally normal thing yeah. that Carnotaurus yeah. was yeah. over there yeah. camouflaging yeah. itself.
3: And that they sort of- It's like spitting Dilophosaurus garret, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know what I
1: mean? Yeah, it doesn't throw anybody off.
2: But that they sort yeah. of made them unhappy by turning the lights on and off.
1: Yeah, that was really interesting. <laughs> I don't know much at all about camouflaging animals, but I guess maybe that works. You shine a bunch of flashlights at them, and they go away.
3: I like the fact that um, Crichton introduced Carnotaurus in the Lost World, though, because obviously we've had the the T Rex is the big predator. We've got the the nasty Velociraptors, so it's nice that he kind of left them right right till near the end of the book. Yeah. Um, even though Levine um, and Diego well Diego gets taken
2: right by the Carnotaurus, but the we didn't stream, know,
3: which we sort of learn in hindsight, <laughs> don't we? So. Yeah. If you get the um, book, the the one that's just been released by Folio Society, um, back to that, Fox drew one of the scenes that she drew was the, the stream bed with the Carnotaurus. Oh, cool! And uh, I won't spoil it for you, but it's it's fantastic. Done it's really, <laughs> really, really, it's really good. The camouflage. So Carnot- uh, Carnotaurus then was amongst things like Argentinosaurus and the saurop- the massive sauropods.
1: Yep. Yeah. So there were okay. there were lots of titanosaurs in south america tons of them and yeah they were around up until when carnotaurus was around so that's why it's like how did it eat these things Mm -hmm. (laughs) These really big sauropods the best guess anybody has is that either they were you know eating the young ones that's one good way to go about it because you don't necessarily just because you're an adult you don't have to eat adults and or they were you know waiting for things to die or maybe trying to help them along by nipping at them (laughs)
3: I suppose they could have eaten the what's the the mouse dinosaur one called <laughs> Mosasaurus. <laughs> yeah, Moussaurus, There you go. <laughs> perfect, perfect biting size. Because <laughs> they've got tiny, tiny arms as well. The Carnotaurus, haven't they? Like really tiny. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Tyrannosaurus has got small arms, but th- these guys. Have, I mean, they're quite big actually. The, where they're drawn here on the map, but yeah, the fossil record shows them as. I mean, they're not really doing anything, are they?
1: No. So yeah, T-Rex, I often say like, yeah, it's arms are small relative to the left is, le- the rest of its body. But I think the estimate mm. is it could still curl like a couple hundred pounds. So it's not a weak arm oh. compared to like a human. Carnotaurus, yeah. on the other hand, has an arm like a child, like a child human. <laughs> and it's,
0: <laughs> its hands,
1: its fingers are so reduced that like they barely, I don't even know if it could make a fist. It's got really pathetic arms. Really? Yeah. I like the one yes. guess at why it even bothered to still have them is that maybe they were just covered in feathers because it's got a really flexible yeah. shoulder joint. So it might've been able to like spin its arms and cover them in feathers and do some sort of like dancing display. That That'd way. be
2: fun to
3: see. <laughs> it's really hard to, hard to get your head around that. It would be so weird. Yeah. <laughs> spinning wings
1: it's hard to imagine though because it still has a lot of fingers too even though the fingers are very short and its arm is just super short but it's got a really large muscle attachment at the shoulder not anything in the arms so mm. it, i don't it's such a that's a big mystery is why carnotaurus had those weird arms
3: so that wraps up the different dinosaur species um certainly that we get on this first page with the map is there any other dinosaurs in the book that you'd like to mention
1: let's see they talked about Hypsilophodon briefly, and they described it as sort of like gazelle-like and watching them work. I thought that was kind of fun, but they didn't talk mm. too much about what they were like. It's a really interesting dinosaur. It's very early, sort of like Musaurus, pretty early dinosaur. And yeah, it
3: was a cool one. What what, what, what are we talking, Jurassic or late Triassic?
1: It's not actually nearly as old as Musaurus. It's 130-ish million years ago, which puts it early Cretaceous. But that does make it way. So, most of the things in the book, like T Rex, Triceratops, Parasaurolophus are all late Cretaceous. And a lot of them are actually from the same formation, the Hell Creek in Montana. So, this one is, you know, about if you. So, T Rex is like halfway in between us and it. So, <laughs> you have to double the amount of time ago and then you get to that. So, in, another way to put it is to T Rex, the fossil, if it found a fossilized hy- hypsilophodon, it would be as old as if we find a T. Rex fossil today. That's how ancient it Amazing. was to T. Rex. <laughs> that's, that's really
3: hard. That's so weird to get bend your mind around that. Yeah. Approach, really, mm-hmm.
1: isn't and that's still yeah. all in the Cretaceous. You know, there's all of the Jurassic and the beginning of the Triassic. You can go back to. So we're much closer to T. Rex than a lot of other dinosaurs were.
3: <laughs> moving away from the lost world novel just to sort of finish things off uh, we've got jurassic world dominion coming up in 2022 mm-hmm. um i just wondered uh what were your thoughts about that upcoming movie and and hopes and
2: fears um i'm very excited i really enjoyed that five <sighs> minute preview with uh what did it come out with the f9
3: mm-hmm. no i've not seen it oh. i've not seen it
2: it was uh it's cool yeah it was very cool and very it, it was meant to be more documentary like the preview was
1: yeah it was very realistic dinosaurs and they recreated some of the ones that were in the parks as like more realistic versions
2: mm-hmm. oh really and then i know gary you're in particular excited to see how people are going to interact with oh yeah. all the dinosaurs
1: yeah because like we mentioned you know that that scene in the Lost World, the movie, where they get back mm-hmm. to San Diego and the T Rex is storming around. And it's just like I love that aspect of like how would humans interact with dinosaurs. It's the most like I love Dinotopia, the book as a kid too. All that stuff is so yeah. fascinating. And to have a whole movie rather than just like one scene of like five ten minutes at the end of a movie exploring that is going to be awesome.
3: Are there any dinosaurs that haven't featured in any of the Jurassic? park or jurassic world films that you would like to see oh yeah
1: you? yeah there's a there's quite a few so <laughs> i would say in there i think
3: Garrett garrett's enthusiasm <laughs> for that question suggests he's, de- he's definitely given it some
1: oh yes yeah. <laughs> the uh jurassic world fallen kingdom so technically jurassic world fallen kingdom had some of these dinosaurs because they sort of did like both through the scene where they're taking all the dinosaurs off when they're on the dock you can see a few in the Mm. background and then also with the auction you know they like rattle through a bunch of them and also you know like sort of in the pen together but they didn't really do anything you know it's sort of just like a a snapshot of them i really above all else i would love to see a dinochirus.
2: oh yeah okay
1: which is this huge herbivore with a big humpback and it's got it was originally only known from massive arms with huge claws. They're and they clothes. Yeah. <laughs> they assumed that it was a massive predator, and then they eventually found this body, and they're like, oh, man, is this thing not a predator? <laughs> <laughs> not even close. It's got like a duck bill, and it's just- What was it?
2: The way it defended itself? It wouldn't have been able to run. It just had to pretend to be bigger.
1: Yeah. But it, it does have some good <laughs> yeah. claws, so- it might have done okay, but it is sometimes described as the Jar Jar Binks dinosaur, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah.
3: I'm thinking Sid the Sloth from Ice Age. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, What a strange thing.
1: Yeah. I also would love to see, similarly, a Therizinosaurus or a Nothronychus because they're both also herbivores, but Therizinosaurus specifically has the largest claws of any animal ever to live on Earth. They're like a meter long, three feet long claws, And that's, I think, without a keratin sheath over them. So if in life, they might have been even longer and very sharp and pointy and all that. And that's an herbivore as well that probably didn't move very quickly. They
2: have had a therizinosaur in the movie, or Lycosaurus. Do you know, I want to see an Alvarosaur with the one claw. I want it. We don't really know what they did One with claw. that either. Yeah, on each hand, like a,
3: maybe like a shish kebab or something.
2: <laughs>
1: if you take Carnotaurus, so like T. Rex has like small arms, Carnotaurus has tiny arms. Alvarosaurus had arms that were so small, it's almost like a kiwi bird. So kiwis technically still have arm bones, but they're so short that you can't see them above the feathers. That's essentially what Alvarosaurus is like, except they're on its chest, and they had <laughs> they had a big claw and a single finger. And then basically like no hand or significant arm bones left. So it's almost like they would have to chest bump things in order to use their claws.
3: The feeding frenzy would be such a funny thing to watch. (laughs) Plus, I mean, if if they ever tried to give each other a hug, it just just wouldn't work. It It just gets... Stuck together, basically. Yeah. My gosh. Right. So we could have some really strange animals popping their heads up in this movie. Then mm-hmm. I hope so. Maybe Owen can get like killed by one of them. <laughs> that, would, that would be that would be a really strange scene to see. He can train
1: oh. train the raptors, but he's got no sway over the tiny chest clawed swords
3: <laughs> Guys, thank you. Ever so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk about this uh, this novel and all things Jurassic with me today. Yeah. It's been really, really insightful, and I really appreciate your expertise on all of the different species of dinosaurs that we get uh, that we come across in the novel. So, um, once again, thank you very much.
2: Yeah, thanks for having yeah, us back. <laughs>
0: so so much for listening to the 303rd episode of the jurassic park podcast thank you so much to ben to sabrina and garrett Uh, thank you so much for returning to the show once again to discuss dinosaurs and uh you know that's the thing i always say i don't know a ton about them but that's why we have people like sabrina and garrett coming back to the show to fill us in on all those juicy details. So thank you so much. And of course, thank you to Ben for uh, bringing us back to the book club here and looking at The Lost World. Uh, It's going to be a fun ride. I cannot wait to dive into this book in the new year. Now, like I said, we will be splitting this book up into three parts. So please read through the first third, second third, and third third. uh, And please send us your thoughts because we will be airing your thoughts uh, along with those specific portions of the book. So please uh, get those in before. Now, you have to get these in before the air dates. So the air date for the first episode will be January 10th. The second episode will be uh, February 14th. And the third episode will be March 14th. So please get your thoughts and concerns and all your feelings and hopes and dreams and whatever else it is for The Lost World in before those episodes are ready to air. And you can do that by emailing us at Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com. Those will all go straight to Ben and he will add those to the episodes where you'll hear your own voices. Discussing the Lost World novel by Michael Crichton. And don't forget, please help us by giving back this holiday season with our Jurassic Gives Back uh, charity drive for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You can go over to our YouTube channel, find a recent video, donate there, and of course you can join us on our live stream. Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be talking all things Jurassic. And, uh, of course, we'll be trying to raise some final, final dollars here before the Charity Drive closes out Wednesday night. So please join us, help us give back, and uh, make the Jurassic community a better place. So thank you so much for listening to this episode Have a wonderful holiday season here as we come to a close almost uh, with 2021. We're almost done. Uh, So thank you so much. And uh, as always, be kind to each and every person you come into contact with. Stay safe out there. Please continue to stay safe. And as always, enjoy. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro. Take it away. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter at Jurassic Park Pod and myself at Brad Jost also on Facebook and Instagram at Jurassic Park Podcast Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook You can listen to us on Spotify Apple and Google Podcasts Amazon Music, Audible our website or wherever else podcasts are found so be sure to follow along Also don't miss our live streams Toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website, or send emails to jurassicparkpod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening, and enjoy.